From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, welcoming you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will be talking with Courtney Tolleson Hartness about her new book, Our Country First, Then Greenville, A New South City During the Progressive Era and World War I. In her book, Courtney explores Greenville's home front experience of race relations, dramatic population growth, the women's suffrage movement, and the contributions of African Americans and women to Greenville history. We'll talk about how Greenville's changes during World War I served to generate massive development in the city and the region. It was this experience that catalyzed Greenville's development into a modern city setting the stage for the continued growth that persists into the present day. Well, Courtney, it's great to have you back with us, and we're talking about your latest book, Our Country First, Then Greenville, A New South City During the Progressive Era and World War I. Let's uh, deconstruct your, your title. You're talking about World War I which is certainly an era, and then you're talking about the progressive era, which if you have to define it concretely as a historian, depending upon where you live, is something of a challenge. How did you get involved with this particular topic? So in the summer of 2014, a student of mine at Furman, Donnie Santa Catarina, and I started to research Greenville's experience during World War I. We wanted to understand Greenville's contributions to the war and also the ways that the war impacted Greenville. And we thought, you know, surely by 1960, or excuse me, 2016, early 2017, um, we'll have a book put together. And then by the 100-year anniversary of the end of the war in November of 2018, we'll have a book out. And what we realized was that this was a much larger story and that the war was a very important period in Greenville's evolution into a modern and thriving city. But it was just one component of that evolution and that the progressive era, you know, from 1880s to 19 through the 1920s or so contributed so much to this as well. So it became a much larger story than we had anticipated. And that's the reason why it took nine years of research and writing to get it out. When you think about the progressive era in America, the 1880s to 1920, you usually think about the Midwest, the Northeast, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and uh, in fact, Senator La Follette said of the American South, there was no progressive movement in the American South, which you and I both know was hogwash. But uh, <laughs> several times you referred to a historian of World War I who said, it's important to look at what was going on in the local community because most World War histories ignore that unless you happen to be living in London or Istanbul or Paris or Washington. I was. I was greatly influenced by that. You know, I'm a public historian in addition to academics. And then, of course, I focus a lot on South Carolina history and I focus a lot on the history of Greenville. And so I was familiar with the extent to which the war and the progressive era 
impacted this community. We had a training camp, Camp Severe, um, here in Greenville. Spartanburg had a training camp. Columbia had a training camp. And the the experiences of bringing, you know, 100,000 soldiers in for training into a community. I mean, the camp population was larger than the city population. You know, I knew the impact of this. And um, I also think it's just extremely interesting for people to know about what happened in their communities and how these huge global events impacted places that still surround us, place buildings that were on Main Street, you know, the Camp Severe site that that um, some folks up here in Greenville are trying to turn into a park. It's fascinating. It's And, it, and to some extent, even for, for the students and for students I teach and, and for K through 12 as well, it makes something that's so massive, World War One. Sometimes it's more manageable to start at the local level and to talk about how people's lives were impacted. And so I I often seek in my research to look at what was going on locally with the community and also with local individuals. There are some fascinating personalities that I that I discovered. Um, well, throughout the you know, of an, out, an outsider might say, well, we know how Greenville got prosperous. All the textile mills came there in the 1890s and the turn of the century. Textile mill story is an important part of Greenville's development. But Camp Severe, as you said, 100,000 soldiers, that economic boost to the city of Greenville was really significant. It was incredibly significant. You know, there was a, it was very much a local partnership. Greenville had the state's first Rotary Club. Um, names like Joe Serene, Alistair Furman were involved with this. And Joe Serene had actually served with Leonard Wood of the United States Army. And Leonard Wood was in charge of the Southeastern Division in terms of selecting campsites throughout the region. They were extremely close, dating back to their experience together in the Spanish-American War. And Greenville was awarded a campsite and it was very much a partnership, you know, um, Greenville provided the land, but the benefits were incredible. I mean, the road development, military highways, um, some of the first paved roads in Greenville, the water systems had to be improved, electric lighting. And then, of course, World War I was a war in which, you know, wives and families often traveled with their soldier in training. And so there was a tremendous housing shortage um, because not only had you know 100,000 soldiers at the camp, but you had their family members, loved ones coming to Greenville and renting every spare room available and eating in restaurants and shopping in stores and traveling on you know, public transportation. So you're right, it was a, it was a uh, economic boom for the community. And these folks were literally from all over the country. They weren't local Southern boys that were being trained here. All, all over the country and beyond the economic impact, the impact of diversification, because a lot of them came here and liked Greenville and, and wanted to stay. In fact, Greenville County set a new record for applications for marriage licenses the week before Christmas of 1917. And um, so many of the young men who came here for training married local women and returned here after the war. So there was a, a population boost that occurred after the war as well. Well, people usually associate a famed division with Camp Severe. What was that? 
Oh, the 30th. Yeah, the 30th, it had been a National Guard division comprised of men from Tennessee, North Carolina, Georgia, and the Carolinas. And they trained here in Greenville at Camp Severe and then were, were sent overseas. And they are credited with breaking the Hindenburg Line. Um, in late September of, of 1918, which was the really the last German defenses to be conquered, and, and they're credited with having done so. So Greenville takes a lot of pride in having served as the site for their training. And after the war, we continue to host members of the 30th Division for annual reunions for several years into the 1920s. When you talked about things that changed because of Camp Severe, roads, waterworks, sewer system, those are things that you also associate with the progressive era. Because when you think about the progressive era, you know, 1880 to 1920, such things as good government, clean drinking water, public libraries, civic clubs, all of that is considered progressive. So I'd like to kind of dig into the progressive part of this because Greenville really is a good example of a town where change did happen even before Camp Severe. Absolutely. And and that's that's really what occurred, you know, when I started this research. There was this fluidity that you just referred to between um, the impact of of having this camp, you know, this World War One training camp and other aspects, other goals, objectives, aims of the progressive era. Um, you mentioned infrastructure, but you know another goal of the progressive era was to move beyond sectional animosities lingering, you know, from the Civil War, and to heal these national wounds and to promote a reconciliation between Northerners and Southerners. You know, we're talking about a period fifty years after the end of the Civil War, and we just talked about the people who came to Camp Severe and you know, the relationships, the marriages that resulted from this, men from all over the country. And so this also, the war had a major impact on moving Greenvillians past the sense of localism and, and regionalism and in bringing Greenville back into the national fold. Greenvillians, you know, white Greenvillians were referring to for the most part, really started thinking of themselves, you know, as Americans again, um, as, as opposed to to just Southerners. You know, it's been well established that a lot of white Southerners did not celebrate the 4th of July in the decades after the Civil War. That was true in South Carolina for almost 50 years after the end of the Civil War. The only section of the population that celebrated the 4th of July was the African-American population. Uh, Right. You know, white Southerners thought it was a holiday for African-Americans and for, you know, Yankees. And what we saw here in Greenville you know, whites had been celebrating Confederate Memorial Day and they continued, white Southerners continued celebrating Confederate Memorial Day. But the 4th of July, 1917 in Greenville was a huge event. And it's really the first time that the white community here embraced that holiday on on a humongous scale. And same thing with Labor Day. Just a few months later, these these celebrations, the parades involved, the nationalism, the patriotism involved all this occasionally caught, you know, national attention because these displays of nationalism and patriotism are occurring in South Carolina, you know, the first state to secede. Wasn't there a film 
taken of either that celebration or something else, a celebration by the 30th Division. Uh, an early film was made of that. Black and white, silent film footage, video footage of the the reunions from the 30th Division can be found in the South Carolina room at the main Greenwood County Library, Hughes Library. And I've seen them. And, you know, there's so many people who flooded into Main Street and, and downtown Greenville. The entire community, you know, embraced these men. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's on the heels. It's a year later, you know, after the war. But it's also very much part of Greenville's strategy, you know, to modernize and to improve their city and to create another economic base for the city. So in the 1920s, Greenville, it had a lot of nicknames, um, mostly developed by the Chamber of Commerce, but one of them was Convention City because they had hosted so many, not only conventions, but, you know, reunions and other gatherings here. There was incredible hotel development. We had the infrastructure in place with Textile Hall to host these conventions and, and huge gatherings of people. Just to step back from this for a second to something you were talking about earlier, the fluidity of the progressiveness, if you will, of that part of South Carolina, how that momentum was already there to some extent before Camp Severe. Is there a person or group of people that we can look back and say, they were sort of at the, the nexus of that energy pushing Greenville in a more progressive direction than, say, Columbia or another part of the state? Yes, and they're largely associated <clears throat> in the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s with the, the textile industry. Mm-hmm. You know, one important point that needs to be mentioned was that Greenville had experience hosting a military training camp, civic leaders recruited and hosted a Spanish-American war training camp, Camp Camp Weatherhill, located very close to downtown Greenville today. So they knew the economic benefits of this. And these textile leaders and, and civic leaders and chamber of commerce leaders and people who got the cotton exchange going and all this, they were very driven. They were very taken with this New South boosterism. And they had a very strategic vision. Um, they, they wanted to be seen as as progressive. Well, the Chamber of Commerce had a lot of very... I mean, this was the pearl you know. of the Piedmont, right? Yes, it was, you know, it, it, and it was the <laughs> Athens of the upcountry. That, that was a moniker given to it from a guy who was stationed here right after the war ended. Then it evolved to the Pearl of the Piedmont and then the textile capital of the South, textile capital of the world, some would say. They also called it Progressive Greenville. There was a monthly magazine published by the Chamber of Commerce that in the title of the magazine was Progressive Greenville. And they also referred to the Greenville spirit, which is essentially, you know, the local commitment to progressive causes in the 19-teens and 1920s. Okay, let's look outside the economic sphere of the Chamber of Commerce, the folks who were behind better parks, better education, health care, particularly for women. This, in many cities, was really the woman's sphere of the progressive movement. And when you talk about progressivism, frequently women are left out of the picture and certainly African-Americans are left out of the picture because progressivism in the South, whether it was in Columbia or Atlanta or Mobile or wherever, it was for white folks only. 
I really wanted to be sure to place women and African-Americans at the center of this story. And they are very much at the center of the story. This is the first um, you know, published account of the women's suffrage movement in Greenville. And I look so much at progressive causes that were largely dominated by women. So, you know, it starts with with temperance, um, Women's Christian Temperance Union, Greenville chapters, South Carolina chapters, Greenville women's involvement with that. And then Greenville had clubs fairly early on for, for club women, and these affiliated with the General Federation of Women's Clubs. And then you move into the suffrage movement in 1890. Virginia Durant Young came up from the Low Country and Viola Neblett, a Greenville woman, hosted a small group of about a dozen people, at least one man, you know, mostly women, and they founded the South Carolina Equal Rights Association here. And so you start to see a lot of progressive era activity associated, you know, with women occurring very early on. Women were also very involved in lost cause memorialization of the the Civil War. And one aspect of this that I found so interesting, Walter, you'd mentioned earlier that that some scholars have said that there was no progressive era in the South. You know, certainly the maintenance of segregation was not something to be to be challenged at all. These white Southerners were absolutely committed to to white supremacy, and um, they were involved in in progressive causes that that are very common mainstream progressive causes nationally as well, like temperance, like suffrage, like the club movement. I looked at African-American women's involvement in the club movement as well. And then, you know, you get to the war and women were absolutely central, African-American and white women were absolutely essential and central to, to this story. You mentioned civic beautification, you know, parks, literacy, Healthcare. There was so much that evolved, and there were certainly currents that supported this before the war. But the war, especially in regards to healthcare, the combination of the war and, of course, the Spanish influenza pandemic, really ignited so much growth for local healthcare. There were five hospitals and health clinics that opened in the nineteen twenties alone. When you researched this, I, I know you had access. To, you know. The Greenville newspapers were very active. You had rival newspapers, so you had a good overview of what was going on. What about diaries, letters? And again, we're really trying to get access to women and particularly African-Americans. What kind of materials did you find? The South Carolina Room at the Greenville County Library has a lot of great information on women's clubs. And I found some great uh, master's theses coming out of USC that had been written. They were they were dated, but they've been written about the history of the women's suffrage movement. I had to get pretty creative with African-American history. Doing African-American history in Greenville can be a challenge. Um, doing African-American history, you know, in the South, you know, 100, 150 years ago. Well, um, I think we need to also let folks know that Unlike most of the rest of South Carolina, we need to remember when World War I comes around, South Carolina is still a majority African-American community, is a majority in the state, but not in 
the area around Greenville. The African-American community is a smaller portion. So in many ways, you see the picture in Charleston or even in Columbia where there's a large African-American community. In Greenville, it's just a, a very small group. It is. It's it, the the demographics, the racial demographics in Greenville are different. Um, the upcountry racial demographics are different from the Midlands and the and the Low Country, and it does make this research a bit more challenging. But it was something I was really committed to, and you know, I spent nine years trying to find. Um, alternative sources. You know, other communities in South Carolina had African-American newspapers. That was um, something Greenville um, did not have. So I looked at African-American newspapers nationally. You know, the Chicago Defender, for instance, ended up being a great source for me. And then even with, you know, African-American club women, I looked at, at, at their records and um, the overwhelming majority of the leadership and also the, the membership for African-American club women um, was from the Midlands and the Low Country. But I'd occasionally find a little tidbit here and there about a Greenville club. And to my knowledge, no one's ever done any research in this way on African-American club women, you know, in Greenville. I found a picture of a woman I longed to see what she looked like in South Carolina Library in their African-American club women records. Hattie Williams, she was chair of the Colored Auxiliary for Women of the South Carolina Council of Defense, the Greenville County chapter. She made an incredible impact on this community. And so, um, you know, that's just one example of something I was able, able to find. Beyond that, I often went into North Carolina and Tennessee records, and I was actually able to find some journals and diaries that I was able to to use as sources. Well, you, you mentioned that in terms of progressives in the South, but particularly in, in a place like Greenville, segregation was never challenged. That was a topic you didn't get into. Also, you didn't question what was going on in the mills. Now, you may have had some progressive uh, mill owners like Parker, and then, of course, the famous uh, Mr. Hollis working with programs in the mills. But you didn't question child labor laws. You didn't do anything like that because that was, prior to Camp Severe, the economic backbone of the city. Absolutely. You know, what I found was that there was this dedication to the lost cause and the dedication to the maintenance of African-American subjugation enmeshed within progressive causes. Some of these suffrage leaders across the state, you know, went to to the South Carolina Constitutional Convention in 1895 and tried to have educational indoor property requirements written into the new state constitution with the idea that if, if women were given the right to vote with qualifications attached to it, that white supremacy in the state you know, would be assured. I found so many examples of women who served as leaders of local chapters and also at the state level of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And they're also leaders of their local, you know, equal suffrage club. And they're also the leaders of the various, you know, part of the club movement, you know, various clubs in different cities. They didn't see any type of contradiction between 
the maintenance of white supremacy and also these progressive causes. In fact, with the City Beautiful movement that really comes into Greenville 1904-1906-ish, there was a Greenville Municipal League that was started and a study was commissioned by um, these landscape architects out of Boston. And so they put this study together of Greenville and it, it had a master plan in it for parks and civic other aspects of civic beautification. And there were recommendations embedded um, in this regarding beautification that the city council in 1912 used to pass what were considered the most stringent residential racial ordinances, segregation ordinances in the country. And this is all being done in the name of progress. So progress was a guise sometimes for formalizing segregation. Courtney, your your title, which is in quotes, Our Country First, Then Greenville. What's the origin of that? I I love the story behind the title. So Greenville had several collaborations with the federal government in various ways. One of the successful collaborations was that Greenville was selected when a handful of cities across the nation that was selected for a U.S. sanitary survey. And this, they did all kinds of research on privies and modern sewage and all kinds of things. And Greenville celebrated with a health day. This was a huge community celebration. The Chamber of Commerce also used health day to unveil Greenville's first electric sign. In the Chamber of Commerce, this had been an effort that local school children had been involved with. The entire community had raised money for this sign. And the sign read, Our Country First, Then Greenville. And this went up in 1916. You know, three or four years into this research, I just couldn't I just couldn't shake, you know, my fascination with the words that Greenvillians chose before the United States entered the war. I mean, it would make a lot more sense if this went up after the United States entered the war because it's, you know, very nationalistic, very patriotic. But this went up in 1916, and it really does show the extent to which Greenvillians had already begun to embrace more, much more of a national mindset. And, and it, it's also representative of, of their aspirations, their economic aspirations. They knew that they had to move beyond localism, regionalism, because of the heights to which they aspired um, economically. Um, and so I was taken with this and then I hopped on eBay and I was, I was always looking for old Greenville postcards. I'd never actually seen a picture or an image of this electric sign, but I was scrolling through eBay looking for Greenville postcards one day and I saw something pop up that I'd never seen before. And it was a color postcard of downtown Greenville and the sign was right there. And um, I knew at that point in time that this book had, you know, not only a title, but a cover image as well. I have to sort of state the obvious here, but listening to this conversation at the very beginning of what we were saying, we started talking about how South Carolina in particular, people were not celebrating the 4th of July before World War One. 
And we were sort of, if not the, the, the center of the, the myth of the lost cause, we were certainly uh, uh, very important in promoting that. And in 1916, so close to the end of the Civil War, they choose to say, my country first. That's remarkable. I thought so as well. One of the many contradictions and conundrums about studying South Carolina history. <laughs> it makes it makes it interesting. <laughs> All right. Courtney Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words you'd like to share with our listeners before we close down? You know, this, A.V. Huff is, is a, has been a mentor to mine, and he's wonderful, and he published a, a history of Greenville in the mid-1990s. And um, certainly there have been smaller, you know, published material that's come out since then, but this is the first truly, you know, academic study that's come out on the history of Greenville. However, it's also it's written um, as much for lay people as it is for other scholars, um, and I'm I'm thrilled to to have it out. I'm thrilled to make this contribution um, to Greenville history, and um, and I'm also really proud that women and African Americans play such a central role in this story. Well, I'm glad that you wrote it for everybody. If you wrote it just for scholars, you might have only a handful of readers which sadly too many historians write only for their fellow historians. They don't think about the men and women in the street. And you wrote this for the folks of Greenville. And it is a wonderful window into a world of over a century ago. Thank you. And thank you for being with us today on The Journal. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It's always a pleasure to talk with Courtney Tollison Hartness, and that was especially true today because her book, Our Country First, Then Greenville, tells the story of a very important time in the history of one of South Carolina's major cities. It's a story about the impact of World War I, the massive growth in its population, and of the diversity of these newcomers to the upstate. And it's the story of the progressive influence of the women's suffrage movement, as well as the efforts of African-Americans and women's groups to advance the civil, social, and economic welfare of Greenville. In her book, Courtney has told us a very important part of South Carolina's history. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio and its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's Journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org on the SCETV app, as well as your favorite podcast provider. Many of the books we talk about on Walter Edgar's Journal are available at All Good Books in Five Points in Columbia, South Carolina. We'll talk again soon.